Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of Rhymes with Orange. Uh, hope you're still doing well in what is now, what, week six? Seven. Week seven? Week seven. Seven. Of quarantine. Yeah, or I guess it's only quarantine if you are quarantined, I think. Yeah, for... I don't like to call it that. I like to call it staycation. Well, that's, I think that's, okay. <laughs> staycation works. I was going to say stay at home, homestaying. No. That's because yeah. you have kids and so it's not a vacation. <laughs> it is <laughs> most, also <this> certainly, term is... <laughs> most certainly not a vacation Right now, I realize but... this term is highly insensitive to everyone with real responsibilities and stressors in their lives, and I apologize for that. But for me, working from home has been a, an easy transition, and I hope the same is true for many of you. And if not, <laughs> I'm sorry. I wish I could help. I'm offended. Maybe it'll be over soon. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm offended by the use by your use of the word staycation. It, it you know, I me. thought you might be. I, I yeah. figured that that was a real possibility and I will promptly remove myself from social media and the public eye. So, you know, for me, it's not as bad as it is for my um, darling wife who is has been home educating our children and putting up with just so much, so much. Yeah. Whatever we're paying our teachers these days, it's, it's not, not enough. enough. <laughs> it's not enough. Um, I'm once we this all gets back to normal. I'm going right over to the school of education, and I'm going to give everybody a nice big thumbs up <laughs> just for for wow, choosing that, was, that. Well, I was going to say a hug, but I, you know, that's probably that's not. That's not going to be cool. Yeah. I really thought cool. you were going to go with gift cards or something <laughs> monetary value. Well, no. Instead, you went with a thumbs up, which is also nice. <laughs> They're all walking into class on their first day in the fall, and there's this guy at the door. <laughs> Who's the weird guy with the thumbs? Uh, on to serious matters. Our, our guests on this podcast, our, our last few podcasts have all been COVID-19 related, and for good reason. It's what's on everybody's mind right now, and it is um, certainly, most certainly affected Campbell University and our students and our faculty and staff. Um, we have a couple of those faculty and staff members on our podcast today. We have Dr. Wesley Rich. He is the Associate Dean for Health Sciences for the College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and he is a professor of public health. And we have Dr. David Tillman. He's an Assistant Professor of Public Health, and he is the Chair of Campbell's Department of Public Health. Um, you heard the term public health there several times because public health is important right now. And uh, I heard Dr. Rich and Dr. Tillman speak last week at a interprofessional education forum hosted by Campbell University, had a virtual forum. It had over 400 participants on it, um, several speakers. Um, the reason I wanted Tillman and Rich, Dr. Tillman and Dr. Rich on here this week was because they spoke a lot about um, numbers and uh, rural health and um, how counties like Harnett County and um, and some of North Carolina's smaller counties are being affected uh, more by this virus. And so uh, Kate and I just spoke to them, uh, the interview you're about to hear. And uh, um, the thing I took away from this, Kate, is uh, there's a meme going around that says, uh, <laughs> or a meme, or I think it's what it's called, I don't know. But uh, um, to paraphrase it, it is, um, I had a choice between hearing the thoughts of my um, C student, former high school classmate, 
or professionals in this and uh, uh, on their thoughts on COVID-19. <laughs> and um, it just, it makes a lot more sense to listen to professionals <laughs> right now because I have a lot of C student, former high school classmates that have a lot of really strong and really wrong opinions about what's going on right now. And it's just refreshing sometimes to hear people who study this and do this for a living. I don't know, is that, am I getting too political in saying that? I'm trying not to. No, I don't think you're being political. I think these experts were super helpful for me to hear. And it's, it's tough when you still have a job to not criticize people who are feeling this kind of panic. It know? is, it is. That's something I struggle with because I, I see these protesters who, um, um, who want the state to reopen and I have arguments against that, but I also am not in a lot of these people's shoes. And, uh, but on the, to turn the table around, they're not in the shoes of a lot of people who are suffering from this. So it's a very big um, uh, debate going on right now. And uh, hopefully if you have any, any, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? If you have any doubts about anything, listen to these two guys speak and, uh, um, you know, hopefully they can help you help guide your conscious through this. I don't know. I, I'm wording this all wrong. <laughs> yeah. They sounded like a gurus right there the way you phrased that uh they're great guys but they're just guys and we value their opinion very much and we're thankful that they came on the show today yeah and uh so thank you for listening and uh we'll keep doing this we've got um we've still got a few more weeks left in this semester kate and uh, we're we're nearing our 12 episode a semester goal so let's try to get a couple more of these in and uh hope you're doing well and yeah, you uh, too Hope everybody out there is doing well and enjoy our podcast. Thank you. Dr. Rich, uh, Dr. Tillman, thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, I will preface this by saying um, I heard you both speak at the Interprofessional Education Forum that Campbell University hosted last week. And I saw that we had at times up to about 400 people listening and viewing in. And so um, very well attended event. And uh, there were a lot of really great speakers. Um, I wanted both of you on, on our podcast today because you both spoke about North Carolina, um, uh, how COVID-19 has affected the state in particular. Um, Dr. Ritchie spoke a lot about models and uh, um, and trends of the virus. And Dr. Tillman, you spoke a lot about uh, the rural impact of this virus. And so um, that's going to be the, the basis of our discussion today. And so Dr. Rich, I'd like to start with you. Um, you, you spoke a lot about the models. Uh, you know, um, I know North Carolina hasn't been hit as hard as um, you know, the state of Washington at first, and now uh, New York and New Jersey have been hit really hard by this. Um, but uh, the numbers are still rising in a lot of counties here. And so um, I, I've got the current figures in front of me right now, uh, nearly 7,000 confirmed cases in North Carolina, 213 deaths. Um, you've studied this, you, you've looked at these numbers a lot. Um, tell us what, what, um, what these numbers are telling you. Sure, yeah. Um, the the short answer to your last question is: Could the state become a hot spot? Well, certainly, if we we remove all mitigation efforts um, and just reopen um, 
you know, under political or economic pressures without any real thought to continuing uh, what are common sense mitigation efforts. Absolutely. Um, now, our initial projections uh, for the peak incidence, uh, that's new cases in North Carolina, uh, was supposed to happen, you know, late last week, early this week, and we did see that peak. Um, interestingly, we, we saw a, a spike in deaths um, yesterday. And so if you were to look at not cases of incidents, but fatalities, uh, we actually uh, look like a double hump camel uh, right now uh, in the month of April. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that gives me, um, gives me pause in terms of just reopening um, the, the economy and removing the, uh, the mitigation efforts and quarantine and social distancing uh, immediately. You know, I'd really like to see this extended in terms of uh, stay at home order, um, you know, another couple of weeks past April. I think it's smart. Uh, I think uh, any efforts to uh, sort of dial back um, the, the social distancing, any efforts to uh, reopen non-essential businesses um, needs to be slow and methodical and purposeful. Um, I think that we took, uh, we, we made the right decisions, you know, as a state uh, at the right time. Um, and it's made a difference. You know, we flattened the curve. Uh, we have uh, not seen the, uh, the, the levels of hospital usage and ICU, ICU usage and ventilator usage, um, you know, that, that could have been worst case scenario. And so this stuff has worked. And I think we, uh, we need to stick with it a little longer uh, than maybe folks are feeling comfortable in doing so. I think the ironic part of this is that uh, as our mitigation efforts have made an impact um, and we are not seeing worst case scenario, uh, it, it makes folks uh, more uh, more antsy to sort of say, hey, things are not that bad. Let's roll it back. Um, yeah. The bottom line is, is working. We need to stick with it a little longer. Um, and so that's uh, that's my opinion. Well, um, sticking on that subject, and uh, we all have our thoughts on this, and I do not want to get political in this discussion because – for some reason, this gets political, but but um, you do. There is pressure right now, and just like you said, maybe because North Carolina is not uh, getting um, slammed on this like some other states are, that there is the pressure to quote unquote reopen our state. Um, could you, um, again, I, this isn't a political question, but could you maybe? give your guess of what would happen should say come April 29th or whatever the, the date is that we just um, went completely, you know, back to normal, so to speak. Um, what kind of, what kind of impact could that have negatively on the state? Do you think? If you, if by back to normal, you mean um, opening all non-essential businesses, um, not having social distancing, not using, you know, uh, the CDC recommended masks and those sorts of, of mitigation efforts, uh, it could be catastrophic. Uh, what's different now than was different a month ago in terms of our ability to treat uh, or prevent COVID-19? Nothing. We don't have a vaccine in place. Um, we've not identified, um, you know, uh, safe and, uh, and effective treatments uh, for COVID-19. And so, you know, while we have been maybe lulled into a bit of complacency uh, with the success of the mitigation efforts we've had, if we remove them now, um, we will then experience worst case scenario um, like it was predicted before. And so, um, you know, the, the idea that uh, 
it, it's not been that bad. We should reopen. What, what's changed? We have nothing to prevent, you know, the spikes in cases. We have nothing to prevent, um, you know, seeing the, the mortality rate rise again. Um, so, you know, to, to reopen without really thoughtful mitigation efforts is dangerous. As a follow-up to that, I would like to ask, uh, this is actually to both of you, um, what does a smart reopening look like? Because I know that while it might seem like everyone's pushing for getting right back to normal in one day, I think the main concern is just how can I maintain my livelihood and what does that mean for people who are elderly and who are immunocompromised and how can we be fair to them and still try and get people back on their feet? You know, Dr. Tillman's done a, a lot of work in the Emergency Operations Center um, in response to COVID-19. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think he's probably well suited to speak to that. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm happy to talk about um, the work that uh, myself and uh, my colleagues, as well as some of our students are doing to support this effort as we think about what will inevitably happen, uh, whether it's um, in a couple of weeks or, or longer uh, down the road is that we need to reopen with some pretty aggressive return to containment strategies. And what that means is that, um, you know, the reopening of, of America and North Carolina should be um, paced with our capacity to do uh, aggressive testing and then contact tracing and uh, isolation and quarantine measures to try to contain disease, much like we were doing at the sort of initial uh, parts of this um, response. So, um, Campbell's actually involved in that. We're working with several counties in the region to extend the, epi, uh, the epidemiological support as well as the contact tracing uh, support for, for those counties. Because one of the things that you, you look at is that even counties like uh, our metro counties are being stretched by this. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly our rural counties are, are under-resourced to do this sort of effort. Uh, Doctor, no, go ahead, Kate. Just to follow up to that then, um, rural communities are, you know, they're hurting. Uh, like you said, we don't always have the resources to make stay at home work as well for them. Uh, mm. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of disadvantages rural communities face that we're not thinking about because we do think about this as being centered in metropolitan areas and urban environments and we tend to not worry about people out in the country? Wow, yeah. Um... You said a lot there. So you uh, <laughs> start by saying that um, it, it, you know, this, like most um, diseases uh, like this, would be expected to affect urban areas first and hardest. Um, and certainly we're seeing that. And I mean, New York City is the perfect um, quintessential example of that, right? Uh, so in North Carolina, the same thing happened. Wake County, Mech, uh, Mecklenburg County. Um, you know, Raleigh and Charlotte started feeling this before everybody else did and, and are seeing really significant numbers of cases and those kind of things. But to your point, um, rural areas are going to continue to see this as an increasing issue for their counties. Um, and it, the, the, the cases are probably going, are expected to hit us harder in terms of uh, things like case fatality. And the reason is rural places are composed differently. We tend to have older populations, uh, slightly sicker populations. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you combine that with uh, a limited uh, access to resources, and including healthcare. So when you put those uh, factors together, you get a little bit of a tender box um, for what um, 
uh, th this novel virus can mean for rural communities. And we're seeing that. Um, and so uh, I think you're right that um, rural communities are lagging a little behind, so it's easier to forget about them. And it, it's always the rural communities are, are oftentimes back of mind for policymakers. Yeah, Dr. Tillman, during the uh, the forum, you had you had a map that showed, I guess, um, about mid-April, um, how this had hit North Carolina, and you know the dark blue was certainly on Wake and Mecklenburg and Triad um, areas, and then you showed just two weeks later um, some of the spread around what you called suburban counties, uh, Chatham County, Lee County, um, Johnston County, and even down into Harnett County. Um, yeah. which got, uh, which, wh whose numbers spiked um, faster than some of its surrounding counties. Um, we're still at a place right now where the far east counties here and far west counties here, um, you're seeing maybe only two to five cases in some of those counties. Um, yeah. Is it still spreading to these? I mean, or would you say maybe these rural counties um, maybe haven't seen their peak yet because of this or um, or is it a little more complicated than that? Oh, no, it's, it's still spreading. I mean, that's, that's obvious. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in um, a, a rural-focused uh, blog called The Daily Yonder, there was a story that highlighted the fact that hundreds of rural counties experienced their first uh, COVID case in a period of four days. Um, it, you know, in that four-day period at the beginning of uh, this month, so it was just a, couple, a few weeks ago. Um, we're continuing to see that. I think there are six or seven counties remaining in, in North Carolina that don't even have a case yet. Um, and it, so, yeah, I, that's what I meant by this sort of a lagging timeline. So these things are, are making their, this virus is making its way out of metro places and into rural places more and more. And, um, and we should expect all communities to be dealing with this for, for a while. I know in Lee County, um, where I live, uh, Sanford, uh, back on April 14th, we had four cases and mm -hmm. everybody was giving each other a pat on the back. We have 48 cases now, or maybe, I think we're in the 60s now, because we had a we had a spike yesterday from a food processing plant. So um, it hit and it hit hard here. And suddenly the, there's a, there's a local fear here that wasn't there a couple weeks ago. And so, um, so, you know, when you said that last week about, about the spread to these counties, it was, it was interesting that it's kind of aligning with, with what we're experiencing here right now. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I don't, I shouldn't get too much credit for that because you can just sort of see the epi curve developing if you're looking at the data and you can just guess this is what's going to happen in these places that are um, just beginning to see see that. But you highlight in your particular county what's what we're going to see, which is that there are these congregate living facilities, so places like um, migrant farm worker camps or uh, poultry plants or um, uh, nursing homes or prisons, once you get this novel uh, virus gets into those sorts of areas, it spreads so fast. And so um, I, I'm not saying anything out of turn, this is public knowledge, but um, you've got Wayne County now that has almost as many cases as Wake County. Wayne County, a uh, rural county, but because of uh, a couple of uh, sites where there was just explosive spread, you, you see this huge burden on a, a rural county. 
Um, so, I mean, I'm not talking about per capita. I'm talking about just raw cases. Yeah. In my hometown, Marion, Ohio, uh, we have a, a large correctional facility that's getting a lot of attention in the news because it has uh, tested 78% positive. Uh, that's about 1,900 cases. It's the largest in Ohio. But what's interesting to me is that all of these reports are saying that 95% of those cases didn't have symptoms. So my follow-up question is, when we first started flattening the curve, it seemed like the point that everyone was on the same page with was not to overwhelm the healthcare systems. But now the more I hear about flattening the curve, I think there's this perception that by flattening the curve, we're somehow preventing it from eventually spreading everywhere. Is that true or false just from an epidemiologist's perspective because to me it just feels like you can't stop this thing we just have to manage it the best we can but i know nothing about science so <laughs> yeah you know it doesn't prevent a lot of people from speaking on this though. <laughs> <laughs> now that is true <laughs> you know yeah you're right you know flattening the curve does not mean that we're eliminating this uh, it literally means that we're extending this out, that we are not seeing all the cases at, uh, in a compressed amount of time that then overwhelms the resources we have with, with local uh, healthcare and hospitals and ICUs. Um, it literally means flatten it and then extend it out, that uh, the cases we would have seen in maybe a one-month period, we now see in a three-month or five-month period. Um, so that it gives folks uh, uh, time to honestly be sick, get good care, yeah. recover, and then the next group comes in and gets sick and gets good care and recovers. Um, because it's mitigation. You know, it, th these are not efforts to uh, stop the virus. It's to slow the spread of the virus. Until we have a vaccine uh, and, and uh, good treatment, uh, mitigation is all we have. Um, so, uh, I, we, I mean, we really appreciate you guys coming on to talk about this. I know we're not here to solve anything. We're, we're here to discuss and to inform and to educate. Um, with education in mind, uh, Campbell University has a growing, budding health sciences um, program here. We talk about school, our osteopathic medicine, our PA, our, our pharmacists, our physical therapists, nurses. Uh, I'm, I know I'm leaving people out, public health. Um, the uh, um, what, and the question for both of you, um, how is this serving? It's tough to do it mobily, remotely, but how is this serving as a education experience for, for your students and for students at Campbell in these departments? Yeah. So uh, I could talk uh, specifically about um, the work that our department is doing. Um, it has been complex because um, many of work very community integrated department. And so our students begin working out um, in support of real public health projects in their first month on campus. And they do it throughout. It's the way we've organized our curriculum. Well, that becomes really hard to do when those community partners begin shutting down their operations. Uh, at the same time, however, um, our students who are studying public health are in the middle of an unprecedented moment um, in terms of the mobilization of public health resources to meet a public health crisis. 
And so we are trying to find every way that we can to support our partners in the response. And that's the reason um, we got a, you know, we get phone calls from counties saying, can you help extend our capacity uh, in responding to this? And we've tried um, to, to figure that out and we're continuing to, to grow uh, uh, a response plan that allows us to leverage our faculty expertise and our students' um, uh, efforts as well to try to, to meet this need. And we're beginning to extend that to other uh, health science programs as well, because many of their clinical rotations or experiential learning or service learning opportunities have been limited by the policies that have been put in place to try to keep everyone safe. Dr. Rich, you have a lot of students who are out in the middle of this right now. Right. Um, what are you hearing from them? Well, you know, like Dr. Tillman said, it is, uh, it is certainly the case that novice learners, even though they may be later on in their uh, uh, their curriculum, you know, they're out there on experiential and clinical rotations, um, to some extent can provide support, but at the same time, uh, their administrative decisions made it at many of these sites uh, to to reduce um, uh, to to reduce contact, to reduce uh, any sort of non-essential. Um, workers and so some of our students are actually not on rotation right now. Uh, the ones that are um, have been retasked uh, to do contact tracing. Um, they are working remotely. They are helping to put together mitigation plans for sites. Um, believe it or not, the, Dr. Tillman touched on it. You know, some of our uh, students on clinical rotations who were never necessarily public health focused students uh, are now getting a really good taste of what it means to to do public health um, in a crisis like this. And so uh, I will say that our faculty have been amazing uh, and resilient. Our sites and our partners have also been amazing and resilient and, re and really, uh, you know, um, their primary focus is caring for their patients. Uh, but they have also been really good at partnering with us and figuring out ways that we can move forward with some of, uh, of the rotations that our students are doing. And so um, I would say that, that we are certainly making the best of a very tough situation. And um, it is our goal to leverage it as much as we can uh, for a positive student experience. That's awesome. And we've really enjoyed seeing the stories from students who have been kind enough to send us their experiences from the front line. That makes our job as marketers a whole lot easier. And uh, we're glad that they're learning from this. Uh, yeah, social media during this time has been interesting for us and we're sure it's been interesting for you. And so we have kind of a just for fun last question. And that's what's the craziest coronavirus myth that you've heard or seen in the last six weeks? <laughs> <laughs> Uh. <laughs> this is your chance to set the record straight. I think you got to go for it. There, there is quite a lot of um, stuff that I see in my feeds um, that are home remedies or yeah. apple cider vinegar. Yeah, vinegar has a lot of powers. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I would. You know, I would point that out because the problem with our our abilities now to design things with a few clicks is that you can make uh, some really sketchy recommendations look very official and <laughs> encourage people to realize that uh, fruits and vegetables are always good for you. They're not going to stop this novel coronavirus. Um, apple cider vinegar 
can help things taste great, it might have some other properties, it's not gonna stop this virus either. Um, the, I mean, it's just really important to make sure you're checking the source of your information about how to prevent uh, those kind of things. So I'll be careful about home remedies for this. Yeah, and the, uh, the one I've seen, which again, um, I'd be pretty careful with, is that uh, alcohol kills the virus. Well, it does. <laughs> yeah, on surfaces. Um, on surfaces. But, Disappointing. Uh, yeah. Now, it, it might make your uh, social distancing and uh, quarantine, you know, um, maybe more entertaining, but it certainly uh, is not going to provide a protective factor against the virus. Uh, all right, all right, all right. Yeah. Well, Dr. Westridge, Dr. David Tillman, um, thank you both so much for taking the time. I know you both of you are extremely busy. Um, it's, uh, it's really been uh, enlightening for us and inspirational for us to see Campbell University uh, making a difference in these very strange and unique times right now. And, uh, and the work that you guys are doing is important and uh, we really appreciate it. So thank you both so much. It's great to be with you.